Welcome to the Imperfect Buddha Podcast, the podcast that dares to think differently. I'm your host, Matthew O'Connell, and in each episode, I explore a topical issue concerning Western Buddhism and spirituality, or whatever you want to call it, with the help of philosophers, religious scholars, and intellectuals from a wide variety of fields, as well as practitioners and teachers, always with the intent to explore new terrain of thought and practice. That's right, we're looking for some kind of revolution here. You can download or play episodes for free at SoundCloud, iTunes and Stitcher and keep up to date with news through Twitter and Facebook. Throw comments at us, criticism, critique and suggestions for guests and topics to cover. You can also find writings, show notes and much more at posttraditionalbuddhism.com. The Imperfect Buddha Podcast recommends O'Connell Coaching. Yes, that's still me. If you're looking for support or help exploring practice beyond tradition in a coaching dynamic, or if you're stuck in your practice or have become disillusioned with Buddhism or some other path or practice, or if you're a secular atheist looking for some kind of way forward without religion and ridiculous beliefs, then you might want to get in touch. If any of the issues that come up in our episodes are touching, striking, or important to you, that's also the material I just love to explore. So visit O'ConnellCoaching.com for more information. Most of our episodes are sponsored by bands. Groups from Bristol, my original hometown in England, or Trieste, Italy, where I currently reside. If you like what you hear, then why not support the artist, most of whom can be discovered at Bandcamp. That's all. Enjoy the show. Welcome to the third in a series of conversations with Daniel Ingram, a character you should be familiar with by now, and if not, go back and listen to one of the two previous episodes for a fuller introduction. I recorded this conversation just a few days back through Skype, and it was initially an attempt to conclude our exploration of a series of posts written over at the Speculative Non-Buddhism site called Trash Theory. Needless to say, we failed miserably to do that. That doesn't mean we haven't had an interesting conversation. In fact, if I were to use a few fancy words, I might say that the conversation is a site of tension, of exploration and of inquiry. It's rather interesting. And Daniel was generous with his time once again, and I'm grateful to him for it. In fact, as I reflect back on the conversation, I'm of the opinion that these are really the sorts of conversations we need, not just self-congratulatory, self-serving, back-slapping conversations in which we affirm each other's ideas and beliefs, but in which a degree of creative tension is available and good-spirited folks being willing to explore topics that might be unfamiliar or maybe slightly outside of their comfort zone. And this resonates with one of the major themes that we get into throughout this conversation, which is the Great Feast of Knowledge. More on that later in the discussion. One thing that has happened is that Daniel's conversations with me have, well, provoked a bit of a response, really. And the response has been, well, not necessarily what I expected, which is probably a good thing, too. Because how boring would life be if all we got is what we asked for? Right, Santa Claus? So, where to? What to say before diving straight in? In this episode, we get into some of the characteristics of what's called the speculative non-Buddhism heuristic. But don't let that scare you off. 
We cover just a few elements in it, which I will go out on a limb and tell you, if you don't know them, you do need to hear about it. Really, you do. If you're a practitioner, an academic, an outsider, a lurker on the margins, whatever you might be, you really can't help but benefit from hearing a bit more about some of the core elements put together by that wonderful living Frenchman, Francois Laruelle. Yes, if you read his stuff, you'll probably have a headache at the end, but that shouldn't stop you from being curious about some of the core concepts he puts out there. They really are quite unique and very important at this time of, well, history. If I'm going to be frank, I could be hyperbolic and say they're actually fundamental for a new kind of liberation to start taking place. And in fact, you might even argue, if you gave it some thought, that the heuristic put together by Laruelle in his work on non-philosophy could be some of the key central tricks that would allow us to collectively start to come towards a more mature, evolved sense of critique, of ideology, of identity, and of the collective acts of meaning-making that we engage in. And we all know that the two great sites of those kinds of things are religion and politics, two very problematic areas, two very interesting areas, and two areas that are not going away any time soon. They intermix, they cross over, they infiltrate each other. Yes, that's right, they do. And therefore, we need tools and an apparatus, not just to insulate ourselves from the world, not just to find some sense of personal freedom, not just to wake up on our own, and also to be more critical of the idea of enlightened society, of waking up groups, of somehow evolving the collective consciousness. I guess Ken Wilber would have something to say about that sort of thing. But guess what? Old Kenny, well, some of his ideas are a bit problematic too. What tools can you use to critique them? Well, here we go. Some of the best available at present, as far as I can tell, really come from that Frenchman. And you know the French? Well, they're kind of annoying, aren't they? I love them, and I mean that. I love the French for being annoying. But I've discovered, through living in Italy, that the Italians find the French thoroughly annoying, as do the Austrians, and many of the Eastern Europeans that I've met too. Why so much rancor? Why so much distaste? Well, I figure because the French have a couple of characteristics that make them interesting thinkers and make some of their intellectuals rather destabilizing, upsetting, annoying, boring, fastidiosi as they say here. They refuse to play by the rules, they enjoy doing their own thing, and they enjoy being kind of awkward. And well, the truth is often awkward. No, not the big truth with a capital T, but forms of truth that allow us to remember or be reminded and made uncomfortable about many of our assumptions about the way things just are. And, well, the world of Buddhism, Buddhist practice, Buddhist theory, the discourse that comes out of the mouth of ancient, old and new teachers are full of such things. And if you're a teacher or a long-term practitioner and you don't recognise that, you are probably a relatively fully captured subject and that's why some Laurelian thought might do you some good. You're going to get a heavy, heavy dose of it in the conversation with Daniel. Daniel, whatever you might think of him, love him, hate him, find him whatever you might. He's a great chap, a great sport, and uh, we really got into the conversation. And there was a lot of, sort of toing and throwing, backwards and forwards exchange of ideas. And I think it's one of those conversations that would be useful for the collective at this moment of time and an example of what happens when you start to get towards the great feast of knowledge. Now, a couple of points. Folks have been commenting, as I mentioned. There's a blog 
that's been set up by Tom Wardridge. He's a chap who's been in touch with the podcast before. He's a psychologist and meditator and professor of psychology in the States. So don't be fooled by the name of the blog. Parletre, I think it is. That sounds French, doesn't it? So there's more French going on. And he's made an interesting critique of some of Daniel's opinions and ideas as they came up in our conversations. Go and make of that what you will. Tom has been pretty good at stimulating interaction from others on the Twitter sphere. Daniel actually wrote a thorough response to Tom. And Evan Thompson has chimed in. He was on a past episode with us too. And many of you may remember that I see eye to eye with a lot of what Evan has to say. So that's interesting. Very interesting, especially if we start thinking about embodied consciousness and the relational approach, which is a major thing that I bring up in the conversation you're about to hear. The challenge of mind and of consciousness continues. I, along with many folks, have long felt that there are some problematic elements in the American Vispasta movement and their envisioning of mind and the individual and subjectivity. Certainly one of the strategies that movement took was to bring in psychotherapy, which was a good thing, I think. Uh, Daniel may, well, Daniel has spoken about the limitations of an overtly psychologized view of meditation practice. And I think there's, again, very interesting areas for exploration there. Um, the challenge of mind doesn't go away. We don't talk about it on this podcast, but it's going to come up in a future episode for sure. One thing that's interesting is just how willing people are to engage with the challenge of ideas and to engage and not compete and not defend themselves and not take refuge in their own kinds of commitments and ideologies. There's a lot going on. I shall say very little more apart from the fact that after this you're going to get an episode with Cleo Kearns on ritual and ceremony and there's going to be, I think in that sense, a nice counterbalance to some of what I spoke about with Daniel. It may even respond to some of the topics that have come up in the criticisms and feedback that's been going on and it's still going on as I say this. After that, I will finally get to the political turn, which I've been preparing for as much as I've been able to. June is my busiest month of the year and uh, it's a challenge. It's a challenge to do everything to the degree that I would like. I've done what I've done. I've done my best. And it's great to see these conversations with Daniel having an impact and stimulating further conversation of the sort that I think we need more of. More people being taken out of their comfort zone and challenged to see what works out in the great wide world. Enjoy. Welcome back to the Imperfect Buddha podcast in the unexpected third of a series of conversations with the rather nice Mr. Daniel Ingram. Welcome back, Daniel. How are you doing? Wonderful. Happy to be here. So nice of you to have me on the podcast again. Yeah, and um, just to be really nice to each other. I mean, I really appreciate you giving up your time to have this conversation, and I'm really pleased to discover that you enjoy this kind of thing as, as much as I do. Absolutely. Even though aspects of it can sometimes be a bit tedious in the preparation, I've actually learned a lot. And strangely enough, in all the readings of the, particularly the speculative non-Buddhists, I have actually come to appreciate them somewhat more, which is surprising because I <laughs> thought I might appreciate them somewhat less, but that's not what actually has occurred. Right. Um, I have some theories about why I've come to appreciate them more and some theories about them, but we can get to all that later. Yeah. 
Yeah. And we've got a bit more time than we had with the trash theory start off where we had about an hour. So we've got a bit of time to sort of hash things out a little bit more than we did last time. I did mention that in the introduction, but, you know, some people miss that. Uh, It takes time to get through these topics and give them justice. So we need to give a little bit more context as well today. Last time you did that by saying a couple of things about speculative non-Buddhism and ex-Buddhism and non-Buddhism. And there are a couple of points that we might just uh, put out on the table before we get going. I should reiterate that um, we've had feedback on the last two episodes. Different types of people have been chiming in with their opinions. And although I've been very, very busy of late, I have managed to have a look at it. And I know that you've looked at some of that too. A couple of things that we might say for general listeners tuning in for the first time. If you're listening to this and you haven't listened to the two other conversations I had with Daniel, you might want to go back and listen to those for a bit of context. In particular, the second one, which is entitled Daniel Ingram Meets Trash Theory. That would give you the initial half of that conversation where we talked about some of the initial axioms that are forming the basis for some of the ideas being shared today. Now, uh, Glenn Wallace, who is the author, the creator and main spokesperson in terms of speculative non-Buddhism, also chimed in with quite a few comments. I would like, though, really for us to focus on the articles that were published at the Speculative Non-Buddhism site, and we'll see what comes in as a consequence of that. There's so much going on. I've got a couple of thoughts, actually, and I would pose these as questions, Daniel. I think one thing to acknowledge about the whole speculative non-Buddhism project is that it's a project that makes sense if you've been hanging around Buddhism for quite some time, and if you're somebody that really invested quite a lot of your, your life in it. It's not really a project that I think newbies can just turn up and get to grips with. Would you, would you tend to agree with that? Definitely. This is mostly a project about, actually, to, to sort of get to the point, I think speculative non-Buddhism is trying to say cult with almost never using the word cult. And they're basically leveling a lot and sort of recreating a lot of the criticisms that are generally leveled at cults at Buddhism in a wide variety of forms and, you know, the sort of having a totally explanatory theory of everything, totally dominating conversations, uh, not being beholden to the application of logic, reason or external reality testing, you know, badly behaving gurus. I mean, you're basically just saying cult. But if you don't know the cult and you don't know how the cult or the, the wide range of cults work, and you don't understand their dogmas or their doctrines or their language or their costumes, then this would just be a baffling conversation to you. I think that's true. Well, I guess that's one interesting way of thinking about it. I mean, certainly one of the key concepts that really starts the way forward that say or might stimulate an interest in this kind of project in spite of its uh, apparent flaws would be this concept of disenchantment. Yes. That spreads beyond the concept of cult. I mean, that could that could actually be applied to anything, couldn't it? Uh, I mean, ideology more generally, including political ideology. Sure. Or, you know, work-placed ideology, right? It's that moment where there's this kind of dissonance starts to emerge in a very strong relationship that a person might have, and they start to feel that something's off. And I, I was thinking about this yesterday, actually, and I was thinking how 
um, what often happens with different kinds of traditions is they often they provide like a, a, an interpretation of that kind of disenchantment and that kind of dissonance, which often leads to people sort of being brought back into the fold. But that, that disenchantment or that feeling of something's not quite right is often either ignored or co-opted or rejected even as a sign of uh, a lack of faith or a lack of progress. Or if we use your idea of the cult, a lack of true belief in the, 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 you know, the salvific potential of the guru. Yes. Or the doctrine or the product or whatever. Yeah. And I wonder, and again, I think it would make sense. I mean, this is one thing Glenn was insisting on, and I think he might be right in this particular sense, that if a person hasn't experienced that kind of initial disenchantment and that kind of dissonance, then again, this project would probably be perceived of, or certainly, let's say, subjectively experienced as an attack, which has obviously been one of the, the main criticisms aimed at it. And the funny thing is, I think most of their attacks, if they were only slightly moderated or slightly better contextualized, would land really well and hold up really well. And actually, some of them just hold up perfectly well on their own. Uh, the, one of the problems, obviously, is the barrier to entry into this conversation is not only a relatively large degree of familiarity with Buddhism and all its complicated manifestations, the famous X in X Buddhism, but also uh, familiarity with a pretty large amount of philosophical theory and complex vocabulary, as you've noticed in a, a previous um, podcast with your worthy sidekick. And so... <laughs> Um, to enter into this conversation actually is not an easy one because the pre-work you need to do and the life experience you need to do and or the, you know, amount of their own sort of speculative non-Buddhism's concepts you might have to look up or struggle with or even read articles on to get a better sense of them. Uh, it, that barrier to entry is quite high. And so it's, it would be easy to get lost in that or, and, or look at it and just go, yeah, no, I don't have the time for that. Hmm. Yeah, agreed. I mean, I certainly uh, engaged in that kind of struggle at the beginning and, and sometimes might have preferred to have done something else. But being such a disenchanted subject as I was, I kept going and, and I'm rather grateful for it. But yeah, you're right. And I think that's an interesting tension, which from a practical perspective could be addressed at some point by Glenn or other folks, which is, would it be possible to produce a slightly more straightforward user-friendly model of this? When we talk about passion again, which is one topic which came up in our initial discussion, it's quite clear that both Glenn and Tom Pepper, who was heavily involved in the, the original project of SNB, for them, a huge passion is the stimulation of the intellect, right? And engaging with thought and the challenges of that. And I wouldn't want to take that away from them. But I certainly think you could have like a two-gear model in which there would be a slightly more accessible form for folks who are certainly on the other side of a long career of engaging with Buddhism, are starting to feel that dissonance and would like to find a way to work with the state they're going through, really, without having to, you know, abandon Buddhism entirely. But And in fact, to me, it almost kind of seemed like they were creating their own cult and or a lot of sort of insider signaling and sort of dog whistling to people who uh, either have extensive philosophical training or just want to say I am a extremely well-read up-to-date intellectual capable of handling um, you know two dollar words the allure of that kind of thing is always there right in every group 
Right. And so I totally get that. I understand. I have my own weird terms and notations and stuff I come up with. It seems it seems like as much we as we complain about these other groups that do this and then we turn around to do it ourselves, which I'm as guilty of as anybody redefining words in complicated, sophisticated ways using, you know, borrowing other people's concepts and bending them to our own. We all do it. And so the barrier to entry into any of these conversations is sort of going through an adjustment and learning phase, uh, just learning the terminology. The same is true in medicine. I think, it, you know, when I was training to be a doctor, it uses all these words that it doesn't need to. Erythema for red. You don't need to do that. But it's one of the ways you keep the profession hard to get into, the literature hard to get into. And so it's sort of ironic that they, like me and the rest of the term, you know, the sort of traditions they critique all end up kind of doing this almost reflexively. It's like we, we can't get out of the habit. That's certainly one way of looking at it. Another might be to say that um, language is also a form of performance. And, yes. you know, certainly there's some of that going on, too. And there is. Oh, yes. This know, is a highly theatrical. Yeah. <laughs> and people miss that. I mean, the other thing as well, which is a slight aside, is having a sense of humor in these circumstances is always a good idea. I mean, oh, sure. you know, if somebody's reading some of the criticism or some of the uh, the harsher critique that comes out without finding it amusing, I think they're probably taking the whole thing a little bit too seriously. Yeah. As the uh, the Scottish comedian Frankie Boyle likes to remind us, not everybody has a sense of humor, and uh, the consequences <laughs> are quite serious as a result. <laughs> That's true. That's true. Another way of viewing the entire sort of speculative non-Buddhism project is like an analysis of the collective unconscious of Western Buddhism. In that regard, um, because it's struggling with some very big ideas, which we are struggling with collectively more broadly, it is a challenge from that perspective too. So I'm thinking in terms of um, what are the principles that underline just the norms of the way we engage and behave and relate socially, whether in a democracy or in a secular society or a religious society, or as being members of one class or another you know we kind of see this this taking place in wider society at present we're seeing these different kind of intellectual lineages which are attempting to kind of reveal the things that are hidden and lead to the kind of collective dysfunction we see and whether that's racism or sexism or homophobia or something like this there's certainly value in that but it's also quite a complex thing and identities get caught up in the process and it's actually quite difficult I think for us collectively to kind of come to terms with the fact that we might be driven by you know these sort of unconscious or subconscious forces for Glenn and Co for someone like myself as well there's this recognition that you can't be somebody who just goes off and meditates within in a cave or a meditation hall and escape all that stuff that stuff is operating underneath and one recognition that comes out of that which is fundamental is that when groups refuse in a sense to engage with the knowledge that's emerging in the time we live they end up getting into certain forms of self-defense which is perfectly yes. understandable and you know the heuristic which we might talk about briefly before getting to the postulates is kind of a, a very practical system for kind of uncovering a lot of that dysfunctional behavior some of it goes really deep some of it's on the surface that's that's probably a good place for us to start looking at the heuristic a little bit more in detail sure 
We talked about enchantment, and um, let's see what you you think or your opinion is on on three other terms that I think would help us going forwards with the the postulates. One is uh, decision, the other is uh, sufficiency, and the third one I would throw in would be the the great feast of knowledge. Now you've read some of this material relatively recently. Do those all ring a bell? Do you remember them? Oh, absolutely. In fact, I have the complete list of that. Uh, document his augury in front of me all broken down by topic and reformatted in my own way for commentary so actually with one click can access the original text on any of those ideas fantastic so can i can i ask you then to tell us something about them let's start with decision which is a really important one absolutely so decision is uh derived from la ruelle if I'm pronouncing that correctly, I actually um, looked up a YouTube video on how to pronounce this, and I'm getting it close to better, at least, than I was before. Um, so, and this is basically his decision is this person's term for how the mind creates a problem, sort of slices reality along a certain line intellectually. Uh, that, so that's sort of the decision. The decision is where to draw the line, basically. And then it then takes that problem and attempts to solve it by putting reality back together. And uh, Laroel and plenty of other people, I don't think it's a unique thought. It's just an unusual word for it, thinks of this sort of decision making, meaning line or making, meaning uh, designation by sign, right? So this is to take a, a sign, a a word, a concept or whatever, uh, you know, say it, it describes certain things and then everything else is outside of that and then attempt to sort of relate these things and then put it all back together into a whole would sort of be the job of philosophy as I understand it. And I actually read some articles on this guy. If I'm getting it wrong, okay, sorry, but that was what I was able to get out of this. And this is not, this is not the sort of this consciousness with which we draw lines is very important. And I think it's actually a key skill. And to remember when we're speaking where we've drawn certain lines and to have that in the forefront of our minds, particularly with some of these extremely slippery terms that attempt to describe what they're sort of talking about as the real, which would sort of be the whole, which would sort of be reality in some way. And it's interesting to watch the speculative non-Buddhists talk about the real and in particular Glenn Wallace. Uh, by the real, I get the sense that he's meaning an extremely gritty, honest, full spectrum, full field, flesh and blood, bone and pain, honest um, experience. One that is not uh, filtered, broken off, sort of pushed away, um, sanitized by language or concept. And so I think this is a noble goal. And I firmly believe that his pointing out this sort of decision term and using this is a reasonable way to do that. Mm. Was that, how was that? Was that okay? Well, I'm not going to be the judge of whether <laughs> that's okay or not, but uh, it, it's, it's a great thing to start with. I might say something about the real a bit later, because I think there's something in what you've said, but that I don't think that's really captures the challenge of this whole concept of the real, which is which is actually rather abstract and quite difficult to come to terms with, especially how it's used by someone like Laruelle or uh, Lacan is another Frenchman we might get round to talking about soon enough. But that's going to come up in a later postulate. One of the ways I think of decision um, is 
quite straightforward, I think, which is basically commitment. So decision is a form of commitment to a way of understanding and interpreting the world. And the problem lies primarily in the fact that people uh, reflexively end up confusing that interpretive model or system, which has been internalized, for reality. Yes, that's one of the consequences of yeah. decision, sure. And I think that's that's the big issue. And I think when you come into something like Buddhism, which is often used or spoken about as yet another system that identifies the true way of things with a capital T, and by doing so, it's sort of, it's, it's self-contained, right? It has the answers, whether that's said explicitly or not, whether a teacher might say, well, go out and look for yourself. While people have made this decision or this commitment to the system of knowledge about the world, and they've understood, and this is the second term, that it's sufficient efficient for doing that, then they've kind of closed themselves off from the possibility of being wrong, which I think is one of the, the other big, uh, let's say, unintended but incredibly problematic consequences of making that kind of commitment. I was actually just reading an article about the Heaven's Gate cult, mm. which basically levels those sorts of criticisms of the cult and also seeks to try to explain how it is that all of these people attempted to, you know, or actually succeeded in killing themselves uh, when the hale Bop comet came around, mm. um, it was talking about how it provided what to them became a complete and total framework that was not, not just s sufficient, but all encompassing. And once they had bought utterly into that worldview, then whatever consequences resulted from that were consequences they became willing to accept, which in the end was mass suicide. Mm. And so these decisions are obviously decisions that can be involving life and death and decisions in the ordinary sense too. And it was, in, I was just actually just reading an article about whether or not we should all kill ourselves at the speculative non-Buddhist site as the key question of existential or existentialism, excuse me, or maybe of philosophy. And one has to be careful with that kind of thing. Cause if you say that's really the question, then some people are going to answer it one way and some people are going to answer it another, as I learned from working in emergency departments. Mm. And, uh, yeah. To put it back into context slightly, this relates back to disenchantment again, because one of the things that happens, I think, for an enchanted subject, you know, for somebody who's been become enamored with a system like Buddhist thought or philosophical thought or Heaven's Gate, or if I were to think of a combining the two, what would be a, a modern day Buddhist cult? Well, we've got the, the New Kadampa tradition that we've talked about. They're pretty good in terms of exhibiting the excesses of much of what's critiqued by the heuristic that Glenn put together. And uh, they do kind of get sucked into this kind of self-contained, self-referential system in which, you know, all of this unconscious commitment is kind of on display for somebody watching from the outside. And of course, the big challenge of the non-position is that when that disenchantment starts to set in, when you start to perhaps reclaim some of your critical faculties, or you start to notice that maybe some of these people are actually rather dysfunctional after all, the question becomes with something like Buddhism as a whole, you know, what do I do? Do I do I leave it completely, which is, which is something you and I discussed last time, or do I, I you know sort of look at it from a new perspective, come out of that that sort of unconscious, uh, unreflective. Uh, commitment and start to say what can be done with this or not and you know as we we said a lot of people basically give up on the whole thing which is a real shame now one thing that we might talk about as a solution in fact to addressing the notion of sufficiency and decision and disenchantment is this idea of the great feast of knowledge which 
I actually consider to be one of the most useful and simple, but also highly functional, uh, let's say, methods within the heuristic for coming to terms with that kind of disenchantment and that recognition that maybe Buddhism is not perfect after all. Now, what do you remember about the Great Feast of Knowledge? So the Great Feast of Knowledge is basically the invitation of Buddhists, ex-Buddhists, as they would call them, to a place where everything is judged, let's just say, fairly and in a much broader context. Whether or not true, fair judgment of anything can actually occur, I don't know. But basically, I'm going to actually read, representatives must hold their own alongside of local knowledges such as art, philosophy, literature, biology, psychology, physics, and so on. And so I like this because the Great Feast of Knowledge seems like a, a collegial dinner where honest people stripped of their guru status or their robes or their fancy hats or their socially designated positions or their ordinary defenses would sit down and actually have real conversations about what, as best they can tell, they think is actually true and or perhaps useful. I don't see, I mean, there's a utilitarian aspect to some of what they talk about as well. And in that context, it actually sounds like a delightful ideal, and it actually sounds like a, a feast I would want to go to. Mm. And hopefully this in some way is part of that little bit of metaphorical feast as I look into their ideas and, and think about how they're applying them back to um, the great and complicated thing that is um, Buddhism in all its various forms. Mm. There's another aspect that we can throw into that, which is the fact that, you know, when you go to this great feast, it's like, what do you carry with you? And I think one of the things that has to be pointed out here is that when a person is still to some degree enchanted or enamored with whatever ideology that they're, they're sort of operating from, there's a sort of negotiation that can take place at the dinner table, which may pass from being useful to being a form of, let's say, affirmation of one's pre-existing position. And this was a point that one of the commentators made, which I was the one I liked best, which is that, you know, the Great Feast of Knowledge functions best when you go there without any hope. And I don't mean to be yes. hopeless, right? But you, you set aside any possibility that engaging with others will affirm or confirm what you believe, suspect, would like to be true, or the way of things. You, know, you can imagine that everybody would have to set aside their weapons at the door before taking a seat. In this case, that would be, you know, the sort of axiomatic principles that they unquestioningly hold as just the way things are. I think at that point, the feast becomes, let's say, a meal of new discovery, of, of um, unexpected or unknown potentiality. That is, anything yes. could happen, right? Sure. And you've brought up two more points, to use their language. The salience of requisite disenchantment is their formal term for this that you must have an appropriate level of disenchantment, which means you must have sort of been in the club in the first place to then be able to be disenchanted. So uh, that's one of them. Wait, there was another one here. Hold on, I've lost it. Oh, fitting proximity. Mm. So fitting proximity is that if you're too close, you sort of get swirled up into the charism or charisma or appeal of Buddhism. And if you're too far from it, then the engagement doesn't have a resonance that's going to perhaps tease out the nuggets of gold uh, from the ruin of the 
Buddhist Real, to <laughs> quote a subtitle <laughs> of uh, the book. I, I actually, I have a friend who was in a cult, specifically the Nexium cult, which is in oh, the no, news. Oh, no, really? Days. Oh, dear. Yeah. Yeah. And what's interesting is this person has a very, very mature relationship to this where they are trying to figure out how the useful aspects of the tech of the cult can be incorporated into something that is not bound up in the cult because they said there, there were useful things that were just straightforwardly helpful regardless you could take them out of the cult totally rebrand them and they would be just as efficacious they're just useful tech and that brings me to my next point which is that i get the sense that they appreciate there is some useful tech tech in the sense of like these are just moves a craftsman could make if they had never heard of buddhism these are just exercises you could do that might be useful. These are concepts that you could totally reframe outside of Buddhism. If Buddhism had never existed, would still be some of, of some value if applied properly. And there, the, the engagement clearly is predicated on that notion. And I think when I, I hear this, I almost get the sense of you know, when I listen to the sequence of punk rebel going to be outside the system and all of that ideal and then clear devotee of the dream, the, the cult, the aesthetics, the, the teachers, the, all of that, right? There, there's no way the speculative non-Buddhist site's anger doesn't come out, you know, out of some kind of process where they followed the gurus, they followed the teachings, they tried to do the practices, and then the disenchantment came for a whole host of reasons. And so now I think there's also like, this is a way to reconstruct a sense of an okay self in, in the nor ordinary sense. I don't mean like in some Buddhist sense, uh, just ignore that, like an ordinary healthy sense of self that's okay mm. and that can be okay and that can be okay criticizing all of that um, and can also be okay with the embarrassment, sort of the admission that they may have totally not realized how deep into this thing they were. And again, I may be projecting here. I don't know these people's life stories well, but I just get that sense. And so this is almost like, like how to deal with the embarrassment and say, no, I'm okay. And now by building something, I can become even more okay and feel good about myself for how I went through this experience and now be a part of something constructive, even in the destruction. That's my sort of read of the arc of this thing. And I could be wrong, mm. but that's what it feels like to me. Yeah, you've got a bit of a psychological interpretation of, of events there. And, and maybe maybe there is some of that in there. Again, I, I don't know either. Um, I'm not sure that's the most interesting side of it. I think if I were to riff on what you've just said, the heuristic, if it were taken as a set of tools, could certainly aid people more generally in coming to terms with what you've just described. Yes, this is sort of a support a support heuristic for ex-cult members. Right, yeah, yeah, which is a nice way of saying it now. But I think as well that that kind of interpretation that might make sense if we were speaking about Generation Xers, and I, I've actually got a point uh, with regards to one of the postulates and Generation X and embarrassment, which is interesting uh, considering you've just brought that up. But I would say as well that, you know, the, the heuristic 
is based on the work of Francois Laruelle. So it comes from, you know, a very different dimension. It is a set of tools for understanding how this identification with ideology takes place more broadly. And I'm thinking about like the millennial generation and then Generation Z. I think that's the one, isn't it, that's coming after or the I generation. And I'm thinking about their relationship with selfhood, the sort of collective forms of selfhood, which are, in a sense, most prominent, are quite different from Generation X. And I think they suffer less yes. from that kind of cynicism and that kind of illusion and embarrassment that you were talking about. And for them, I'm actually looking at the tools that are available within this heuristic. And again, we could not succumb to the decision towards the heuristic itself, right, and think of it as yet another salvific system for, for solving all the great big problems. But if it were to be taken as a set of tools, sometimes I think how how useful would it be in order to anticipate for this younger generation to avoid getting sucked into ideologies in the first place? And that's a, that's a speculative question I have, and I don't know if you have any thoughts on it, but is it actually possible for people who are younger and going through different stages of you know maturation from teenagehood into adulthood to actually bypass getting sucked into ideologies or not? Because it seems to be a very sort of human predicament. And it seems to be as well that just as we said with Buddhism, if you haven't gone deeply into it, the disenchantment's not going to take place. Therefore, this kind of practice might not make sense. I wonder if it's actually possible to construct, whether through dialogue or even a state education system, and I'm not talking about some sort of spiritual, you know, idealistic thing, but whether it would be practically possible to get round that kind of process, not so that a person remains, you know, outside of ideology or systems of thought and practice, but whether it would be possible to develop a kind of critical awareness at a young age so that people can just navigate them far more successfully without becoming entirely enchanted by them. That's obviously a big ask if we're talking about spiritual and religious things, but maybe politically, socially, work-wise, it would be more possible. Anyway. Absolutely. And I think that's a great dream for me, having gone through a number of processes that seem very designed to be an indoctrination, like a boot camp, almost a brainwashing. So I was in a PhD program in epidemiology. Uh, PhD programs are kind of a brainwashy sort of thing to do to uh, yeah. someone. And, <laughs> and luckily, they also, by the end of them, typically are so grueling and often toxic that they sort of create the disenchantment that you dream of. But <laughs> medical school also is very much an indoctrination into a system uh, mindset, a way of looking at the world of health, of how one should relate to people who are sick and or well, and all of that. And if you're doing something in a system to that degree, regardless of how much um, cynicism or attempts to say, oh, I'm out and above this, if you're, if you're working in it that much for that long, it's nearly impossible not to drink some of the Kool-Aid. The other part is this, there is part of human development that something like speculative non-Buddhism, it's hard to imagine it actually arising from people who hadn't gone through something of an indoctrination process. Mm. And so there may be value in that. And just as we talked about last time, as I'm not sure I want to necessarily entirely protect younger generations against appropriate cynicism and anger, which can be very motivating and useful, mm -hmm. in the same way, I'm not entirely sure that utterly protecting people from something of indoctrination is you know, utterly useful. And so that said, being able to have along the way 
the appropriate concepts about what concepts even are, the appropriate concepts about how to use them, the appropriate concepts about groups and social dynamics and cults, which are everywhere, right? So cults are brands, cults are all kinds of things, the cult of Apple or, you know, all these mm-hmm. sort of culty things. Having both of those sort of along the way together, I think is likely to be a more realistic and perhaps produce richer results because you can't have the great feast if you don't have people who know what they know because they went in that deep. So just Mm. like, you know, philosophy, it's very hard to be a good philosopher if you don't spend a lot of time reading and thinking about the philosophers. I have not spent as much time as reasonable number of these people. And so they're clearly better philosophers than me. They may have drunk the philosophy Kool-Aid, but then coming out the other side, they probably also can philosophize with more nuance and historical context and things that are just lost on me in the same way of Mm -hmm. um, going into Buddhism or whatever other cult. I think another analogy that's quite useful to follow up with is this idea of of, of a dance. I think um, we were talking about this with Hokai and Ken about practice being placed not within the the field of religion or even philosophy, but within the field of art and the idea of apprenticeship and so forth. But, you know, if we think about skillfulness, which is a term that gets used in Buddhism, if we think about it in the arts, it's this, and this relates to some of the postulates we might move on to next, it's this idea that, you know, if you're dancing something like the tango, which I have, uh, as some listeners may remember from a very early episode. <laughs> tango is a very interesting metaphor, I think, for this kind of practice, because in a sense, there are facets such as intimacy and closeness, space and distance, timing, and the, let's say, merging both with your partner and the music and the space you inhabit. That's quite a nice way of thinking about this kind of intellectual pursuit more broadly, especially for people who often make the claim that, you know, a lot of the Glenn's work and Tom Pepper's work and the heuristic and so forth are merely a form of intellectualization. I mean, that's one of the quickest routes to dismissing it I know of. And it's not a particularly interesting form of self-defense in my view, although certainly what you said about the need to read up on things is absolutely true, that there is an entrance price. But if we think about it instead as, as a dance, it is a case of, you know, how do I skillfully navigate the relationship and the intimacy I have both within myself and my own subjectivity and how willing am I to expose that to the world out there and a different range of dance partners who will present different types of bodies and odors and timing Mm -hmm. and movement and skill and so forth and that's the way I tend to think of the heuristic in a sense and maybe that that's a slight or a partial answer to the question I posed before as as a speculation which again is that Tango is an art. I mean, it takes several years to get very good at it, and it requires a certain degree of maturity. And even within communities of tango dancers, there is a certain nobility, there's a certain grace that emerges when one learns to kind of balance their own sense of individuality and their own capacity to sort of merge with the space and different types of partners. And I think that might be another nice way of just just approaching this kind of project. Which also, your analogy actually has that same sort of romance that this project does. I didn't really catch that the first few times I was exposed to the speculative non-Buddhists, but they are out incredibly romantic. The language is romantic. The images are romantic. The extremes are in many ways romantic. It has some of that sort of passion and spark and life of the romantic poets. It has that comfort in a sort of a bohemian way with truth and beauty, which is also in many ways very romantic and uses a lot of images like, uh, you know, the rebirth of Dionysus. I mean, that's so 
romantic, you know, and uh, mm. the great feast is an extremely romantic concept that they use words like thaumaturgical refuge, you know, thaumaturge, you know, sort of the wizard or, you know, like, th I mean, these are really romantic concepts and that sort of interest and aesthetic is actually seems to be part and parcel of the way they operate. Mm. Well, that's an interesting way to put it. Yeah, again, it's very visually and lexically performative. Yeah, I guess there's an element of Generation X there again, though, in the, in the sense that it's all done rather playfully, isn't it? Quite self-consciously. Yes, pl well, playfully, but with a serious bite. I mean, this is like, uh, yeah, of course. you know, it's, it's sort of like the playfulness of rabid pit bulls. <laughs> Yeah, they can. They can. <laughs> but maybe appropriately so. Actually, a lot of their criticisms, I just think absolutely. Right. Well, I'm glad to hear that. This is a, a point I've made with people who I've communicated with privately, uh, quite an interesting range of people. And one of the first points I've always made is, is, is you know, try looking at it again as if it were like a theatrical yes. performance. Again, it's just another way of saying it. it's a dance or it's a play or it's a pit bull fight. But as soon as you do that, I think it takes a new shine to it and it starts to become yes. far more interesting. And just as I wouldn't expect you to change, you know, your interests and your passions, I wouldn't expect the same of, of Glenn and Tom either. But I think that, you know, if we're going to, to enact some form of the great feast, well, you know, if I go to somebody else's house, I kind of feel like I'm going to adapt myself to some degree to their habits, their customs, their their living room or whatever it is right because that way I can yes. participate fully I'm not going to lose myself in that but that's just a basic sign of respect and I know that with some friends the dinner will will take place in this way and with others it will be more or less formal and it's kind of just it's that dance metaphor again but Daniel I think we've probably said enough about the heuristic shall we move on to the postulates or was there something else you really wanted to get out and put on the table um, before we move on? There's one thing I kept missing in all of this and it's an extremely important point so I went through a similar phase of sort of going into Buddhism, drinking the Kool-Aid, following the teachers, reading the texts, appreciating the stuff. And then I went through my own phase of uh, disillusionment, disenchantment, disgust, uh, frustration, careful reevaluation of a reasonable number of concepts. But then, you know what, I don't mean to say for an instant that I'm done with that process. No. But then what began to emerge out of that was an appreciation of sort of technical craft and tech, and which I get the sense is sort of what they're going towards, but I almost never see like a discussion of precise practice details being critiqued. There's, there's no discussion of the tech of how you may or may not get into jhanic states. There is no discussion of various ways you might slice the mind at that level of technical craft. Like it wouldn't be like, I haven't, maybe it's there, but I haven't found yet, like if you had two people talking about how to build a cabinet, one would say, oh, you should use this kinds of chisel and this kind of sandpaper, or no, I think you should finish it this way and use this kind of oil on the wood for this reason or something. It, it, it stays sort of conspicuously above the level of those who have gone through a process of sort of being a believer, being disenchanted, and then bringing out of it sort of some of the technical craft elements of things you actually can do to your brain that really do help and sort of basic things you can apply to your life or your speech that seem to be of just basic sort of ordinary value and do sort of hold up to reality testing. And that's what I kept missing. And I was like, 
Because that's most like that's 95% of the discussions I have in the weird little corner of the world of Buddhism or meditation practice or whatever that I live in. And I have almost no discussions about the issues that they're talking about, you know, about, you know, the absurdity of the meaning of the word emptiness in various contexts or Zen's anti-intellectualism or whatever. Those just don't come up much. And mostly I'm left with a small group of friends who like doing cool things to their brain through reproducible techniques. And then it's to kind of a discussion of tech or a discussion of kind of like a guild level craft. And so that's what I keep missing and going, yes, yes, yes. But, and then the, the fact that that is not addressed is like when that's most of my world is like, yeah, okay. But the rest, this other part. Mm-hmm. So that's, that's what I kept mm-hmm, feeling mm-hmm. like they were going to get to that. And then it just never got to that. Or if it does, I've missed it. And you know what comes to my mind in, in listening to you is that considering that uh, one of the responses that Glenn gave in the Facebook posting at the Imperfect Buddha podcast site was that uh, he would actually be quite happy to have a conversation with you at some point about this. Cool. <laughs> and I think actually that would be a great question. I mean, the, the whole thing more generally, but I think that would be a great question to pose to him directly. And I think is perfectly valid, and is certainly a question I think does need addressing. And I and I agree with you. And I think that you know the first step that's been taken to some degree in that direction is you know what we're going to be talking about next, which is these ideas of practice and postulates. But you're right; it certainly doesn't go down into the details of this technique or that. I think I'd just say two things to that before we move on. One is that, and this is something we touched on in our first conversation, the idea of practice here is taken far more broadly to encompass pretty much anything a person might do. And certainly one of the major practices over at that site has been the practice of discourse, right, of conversation, of reflection on philosophy, contemplation, debate, discussion, the Mm -hmm. use of rhetoric, and and that's all fine. And certainly that has a huge place. And I think we could probably uh, say in a pretty obvious manner that that has often been missing from Buddhist groups, or rather the willingness for that kind of dharmic discourse to actually engage more fully with other sources of knowledge has often been lacking. And there are a great variety of reasons for that. And we can have a sympathetic reading of why that might be. It's actually, it's, it's a little bit different from that. Or they, those conversations occurred in certain groups among certain people, a lot of them even before the web was up and people were writing everything they thought and said and did and ate and whatever. And they just weren't a mm-hmm. part of those conversations because they were either not engaged with it or in some other, you know, realm of the Buddhist world where communication wasn't going on. A lot of the conversations they're having are thoughts I was discussing and debating with people in their, you know, early mid nineties when I was running into this stuff and conversations that continue to occur when I run into, you know, people from Advaita Vedanta or, you know, scientists who I spend a reasonable amount of time hanging out with. I'm going to spend the whole rest of my summer mm-hmm. basically hanging out with and discussing, you know, these or psychologists or, you know, whatever other people from other fields and walks of life doing different things with different agendas and different perspectives and different information. And so those conversations, a lot of them are, are conversations I had. And then it was like, okay, yeah, that's cool. And then what are we going to do with this? Which is what I get the sense they're trying to figure out what emerges 
what grows out of the ashes of ashes of the ruin. So, and but mm-hmm. the fact I think because they didn't hear those conversations, weren't there for those conversations. Literally all all over the place. You say, you know, you know the sort of the exaggerative way of speaking they use. These conversations never happened. Buddhists Buddhists have never discussed these things. Nobody's ever uh, applied real science, scientific or philosophical or intellectual criticism to these issues. Which is again sort of their heuristic where they create this sort of a black and white way of looking at thing in a very decisional kind of way, a very sort of strict decisional kind of way. And then, you know, conversations result from that. I would suggest that in part you're right, although I would suggest as well that certainly if one of the first criticisms that I started elaborating in my own mind before coming across the SMB site, and this might explain why I found it so useful at the beginning, was that the concept of the collective formation of people isn't present, as far as I'm aware, within the Buddhist philosophy and knowledge. Um, This is a relatively recent discovery. There seems to be two levels, I think, in a lot of spiritual discourse, which, and for anybody listening, this is not about things being better or worse. It's not about a hierarchy of which system of knowledge is superior. I just think that it's taken us quite a lot of time as a species to come to understand about that sort of terrain in the middle between the individual who has, you know, an identity, has an experience of selfhood and so forth, and that kind of universal encompassing the whole species level of discourse. That stuff in the middle is something that we've come to articulate a greater understanding of over the last 100, 150 years in a way that's been missing, I think, from most systems of knowledge, including Western systems of knowledge. Uh, Well, it's just been missing. It's just not been there. And I think uh, one answer to what you said right now and also that, that question before is that to some degree, the project of the heuristic as I've been saying, is is the work on ideology, which really means the work on the collective meaning-making practices of humans in, in groups at the, the local and, let's say, glo- global level, okay, fine, but more likely the, these formations in between the universal and the individual. And to some degree, the heuristic acts as a kind of assault on subjectivity in the sense of it being, let's say, structurally formed within a sort of shared mode of being in the world. One other point that we should throw in, just to balance out what you said before, is that one thing that does often happen because of enchantment and because of decision and because of sufficiency and because of a very much negotiated for one's own benefit relationship with the great feast of knowledge, which in my experience and view, certainly for Buddhists, is almost never done intentionally or with any ill intent. It's like a sort of reactive response, is that they they, they play with loaded dice would be this concept that Glenn uses as well, right? They've already got kind of enough set answers that they kind of feel that they're safe enough to expose their ideas, but only to a certain degree. And that's why I think you go back to that, 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 the fact that, yes, Glenn is using all this dramatic language. And part of it is to just to kind of disrupt the normalization of that. And part of it is to say, well, look, you might be right. And this is what I would say to you. You might be right. I don't know. But you also might be wrong. And if we entertain those two possibilities, then it, it opens up the way for a different kind of exploration. So yes, it, it may be that these conversations have been had and they weren't part of it. Who knows? I don't know. And it may be that, yes, those conversations had, but they were still captured within that sort of decisional matrix. And because of that, something certainly interesting might have happened, but there might have been, to some degree, the avoidance of something that was important. And all of this is obviously speculative thought, of course. All I'm saying by this is that, you know, these conversations need to keep happening. And, And at least for me, at this point where we are 
in history that say in the West, with Western Buddhism, the most interesting conversations are where these types of discussions keep opening up, keep opening up and keep engaging with more kinds of knowledge or, or more kinds of ideas. And, and it starts to become very interesting when you have people come into those kinds of conversations who, who actually don't know anything about Buddhism at all, uh, are really against spirituality. And, you know, you're kind of challenged to have a conversation and kind of state your case, right? And kind of say, well, look, I do this meditation stuff. All right, well, I don't know what meditation is. It's just what is it you're actually doing? And that's where I think the Great Feast of Knowledge comes into play and something interesting might be happening. Now, I think these guys might be interested in doing more of that. I don't know. We'll find out, I guess. But postulate number one, should we go for it? Yes. What are these? These are basically a set of ideas about what happens when you go through disenchantment. Once you start to come to terms with decision sufficiency and you join that great feast of knowledge. And as you were rightly saying, but you still want to do something with the tech or the materials of Buddhism. And number one is this. uh, Practice is a struggle against mastery rather than a reaching towards it. The most crucial element for any non-Buddhist practice should be a perpetual resistance to taking any part of subjectivity as a refuge or as some sort of default state removed from the inconveniences of social subjectivity. Practice necessarily implies struggle. Practice leads to mastery, at which point practice is no longer needed as such. To practice, then, is to resist mastery in perpetuity. There, There's a whole bunch of things in there. So practice as resisting mastery. I think the fear is that if one says one is a master, one has mastery, then based on the background conversation to this, I believe that they are then saying, I am sort of uh, removed uh, from suffering. I am now something unusually special. I am now cut off from parts of myself by those identifications. I am now free from uh, the ordinary facts of this relational, visceral, real world. And so I think they very rightly point to being against making those kinds of declarations or coming to those sorts of ideals for oneself or even struggling towards a situation in which one finds oneself uh, designating oneself as a master in that specific kind of way that then is filled with the problems of decision, filled with the um, buying of the ideal that then actually takes you away from what the ideal is pointing to um, and instead fixates on the ideal, which is the limited thing. That's an interesting way of coming at it. So what do you think would be the consequences of accepting this? This is my own take on it. And perhaps this is my own, you know, practice-based filtery thing. I could be getting this totally wrong. I realize I'm, might they, from their point of view, I might have totally be indoctrinated and not be able to see the problem with this, right? <laughs> I'm sure that's going, those criticisms are going to arise in comment. Yeah, something certainly yes, will. Yes, <laughs> that's pretty much a guarantee. But acknowledging that and my, I get the sense this is uh, an attempt to make sure that one is honest and continues to be honest and continues to be investigative of what is actually going on. What is the truth here? And the notion that the designation of mastery or even the striving for mastery will take one away from the gritty, real, the primal unity, um, uh, if uh, 
um, the truth of the real anyway. So, and into a veil of self soothing comfort, I'm reading actually straight out of the last little part of the heuristic. What struck me as interesting about this, and I've taken actually quite a practical approach to all of these postulates uh, and seen how they relate to my own experience and the way I tend to think about things more generally these days, uh, hopefully operating uh, as, a, as a disenchanted subject. I'm fascinated and I've been fascinated for a long time by how people take refuge within different kinds of forms. And I think that this taken as a practice basically means that you would resist taking any idea or practice or state or concept as any kind of uh, refuge from from the real. And in this case, the real would be that which is beyond our ability to capture it. It's something that actually is, is just beyond our sort of sensory cognitive abilities. Okay, wait a second. But there we, we have to go back up to the towards the top of that page, which says that ex-Buddhists hold that there is this direct experience that is not their experience. And so actually, I think it's, I think they're pointing kind of the other way, mm -hmm. not to some, a real, that is the ideal of the direct experience that they can never actually reach, but the real of their actual friggin' experience, um, unsliced by or unedited or unfiltered by their intellectual concepts. So curiously enough, I think that speculative non-Buddhism in its weird hyper-intellectualism points with all of that intellectual and philosophical tech to something that is extraordinarily primal extraordinarily visceral and extraordinarily unintellectual, um, a, a tr true experience of what it's like to actually be here as an honest human in this moment and to not take any temporary stage or state or anything as being a refuge. And I actually, curiously enough, think that's what Buddhism points to, which I think if this is their key goal is why they still see some value in engaging with it mm -hmm. because it's hard not to come back to, and I, they're going to say, are you using Buddhism? Okay, whatever, but fine. <laughs> I'm aware of like, I'm just thinking of all the labels I'm going to get thrown at me now that I've read this site <laughs> for hours <laughs> and looked at this stuff, right? Okay, God, I can just hear hear what's going to come. But anyway, but if the point is that there is no refuge, so contingency, right, which mm -hmm. is what they call dependent origination. Right, yeah. 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 And emptiness and anatman, that there is no self, right, mm -hmm. in this, also point to what they think of as the Buddhist real, which is this immediate moment. Um, and so I actually am pretty sure, and it could be totally out of my mind, that they're not talking about a real that is far removed. They're talking about here, which curiously enough, from my point of view, Buddhism at its very essential best, and they're going to hate that, I get it, is also kind of trying to do, which is why they still feel there might be some value if we stripped away all the crap that actually takes you away from yourself, all the ideals, all the sort of intellectual whitewashing of things, all the, you know, whatever that the immediate primacy 
of one's humanity is what they're pointing at. And I, there are a bunch of quotes that give me that idea um, from the first trash theory uh, thing where someone is becoming uh, eventually grateful that they are being disenchanted by guru after guru um, who actually is proved to be a human being and not the sort of demon sage of all-knowing wonder or something. Mm-hmm. Again, I'm quoting, yeah. sort of. You're right. There's a lot in the first postulate, and there's a lot in what you just said, too. And I would say two things that come to mind in response to that. Uh, one of them is that, that the recognition that emptiness certainly is, is a core concept, and that comes up as a postulate later on, and, and hopefully we'll get to that. And I think one of the the observations that's been made and is that that emptiness often ends up becoming something else, right? It becomes filled with something else, something within the imagination. Yes. It gets filled with desire and, and then desire itself gets sort of eliminated or considered to be something fundamentally problematic or something that we could get rid of. One interesting observation in that is that it's very, very difficult for groups of people over time not to start filling emptiness or filling into dependence with very interesting, very attractive stories about what those things are. And then, you know, the real, let's say, experience or, or the gesturing towards, which is the second point, I'll make something like emptiness or the significance of it, um, it gets lost. It gets turned into a practice of of self-affirmation, which is why there was that, yes. all those pieces by Tom Pepper on the fact that, you know, when so many Buddhists or spiritual folks more, more, more broadly talk about emptiness and going into it, what they're actually saying is we're going to find something true and ultimate and of real value in there. And one of the challenges there is actually articulating uh, a a sort of collective sense, meaning at that grace feast again, understanding of what something like emptiness could mean beyond Buddhism, whilst not giving up on the contribution that Buddhism makes. And one thing I, I find useful, and I think we talked about this in our second conversation, is that one of the ways you can sort of get around that to some degree or start to realize that that's operating, that there are social forces actually in many ways forming the flavor of emptiness that a person may access or come to terms with and then affirm to him or herself and then the group is to start to use other kinds of language to define it. I mean, this real concept is problematic. I'll confess this from the get-go. I find it problematic and I think I probably should, although I made notes about it. But one way... I think about practice often is that we're gesturing towards the world. We're gesturing towards things in the sense that our practices, our ways of talking about them, our ways of of coming up with ideas that we accommodate for a period of time are a gesture towards things. And I think for many of us humans, like really, if we come down to it, if we look at our limitations cognitively and physically, the best we can do for a lot of this stuff is to kind of make a gesture towards it, but keep keep open in a way that allows us to be constantly surprised or at least hopefully surprised by other ways of viewing it and that can keep us honest. So I think often of um, the incomprehensible and what do I mean by that? I mean that you know the idea that we could conceive of it is itself a bit of a joke really once we start to think about it. We don't have the faculties and therefore what we're actually doing is not engaging directly with reality or the real in a total grand sense, but we're establishing a certain kind of human relationship, which is experiential, it's phenomenological, as as you would rightly point out, Uh, it's based on something that's taking place within the world, so therefore there is feedback. But the, the game, in a sense, or the practice would be that the practice is actually how do we negotiate or navigate that kind of relationship in a way that keeps us honest, and that allows us to 
stay at the, the the table of that great feast and actually learn more about those possibilities or or uh, how should i say this expand the different tango dance moves we might actually learn so that we're keeping ourselves honest and not slipping back into the temptation of establishing a new form of decision or slipping into a new a belief that maybe it would be enough now actually if i just stopped with this which would be another form of sufficiency I don't know if that's clear because I'm kind of thinking off the top of my head here, but that's that's one way I'm thinking about all this. Hmm. What that makes me think of then is about uh, again. I keep coming back to practice because I primarily think of myself mm-hmm. as a mm-hmm. practitioner rather than as a theoretician or a philosopher or a even way I'm way more of a practitioner than I am a Buddhist. Is what I also don't see is the fact of experience. There, there's a last leap that I'm missing in the speculative non-Buddhist stuff. So bear with me for a second. If we take just for the sake of argument, the real as the sum total of one's experience, complete, not split up, not censored, broken in the augury of restored oneness. Again, I'm reading straight from their stuff. If that truly is the ideal right to to eliminate the problems of decision one of the bits of tech that helps with this is when thoughts are actually just an experience in the room whenever with everything else this actually functionally however you attain to that by buddhist training or non-buddhist training or just doing a set of uh, exercises that one found in a book regardless of anything about buddhism or something this is something you can actually do functionally and learn to hardwire, which is cool. And regardless of any considerations of mastery or completion or anything. And then when thoughts are just occurring in the room, it's not that meanings and socially constructed meanings don't have power. They do have a lot of it. And it's not that our conditioning in terms of intellectual things doesn't have power. It still does. But from a certain lived experiential point of view, once your experience is actually totally and completely there as what's fully happening, then concepts such as no self actually make a vastly more experiential sense as thoughts are just an undifferentiated part of the thing that arises in the room or vanishes or arises in space or the forest or wherever you happen to find yourself from an ordinary point of view. And so that's the sort of missing piece of tech that I keep going, okay, yeah, philosophers, there's actually something in the experience of thought that leads to an appreciation of the, uh, again, to use a loaded term, non-duality of thought and then metaphors they're probably going to hate, like, you know, ocean or whatever. Anyway, but this is actually, these actually do point to a, a doable thing And I sometimes wonder, like I went through a thought experiment when I was doing this and I said, imagine if all the speculative non-Buddhists had never, let's say Buddhism had never existed. There was just never was a Buddhism. It didn't happen. There was never a Buddha. There was no anything. And let's say, and I don't know why I came up with this specific thing, some slightly aspy 15 year old teenager in Guadalajara, and I don't know why that came to mind, just happened to like noticing things about experience, started say noting, started say 
paying attention to a white paper disc on a wall. Started do th- doing things that her parents thought were kind of weird, but she was a little bit aspy and was kind of into these things. And it was sort of her way of stimming or her fascination or her unusual talent, right? Actually, lots of my friends are um, somewhere on the spectrum. Lots of people think I might be somewhere on the spectrum. So um, anyway, talking with some experience of these things. And let's say that over a number of years, she came up with all these interesting things you can do with your brain and then taught some of her friends and then eventually was discovered by some scientists. And it turned out that the interesting things she'd learned to do with her brain were reproducible. And then the question is, would the speculative non-Buddhists be into them? Because some of them, curiously enough, provide a perspective on philosophy, the intellect, questions of decision, um, and even questions of mastery, not in the sense of I am the master and that thaumaturgic magical sense, but these are actual upgrades you can do to your brain that actually you're like, yeah, before it performed this way and now it just performs that way. And would they have these same reactions to the tech? And I often think at some point, some of the sort of like, because of the noise and the incredible complexity that Buddhism as an ism and all these, you know, as, as a religion and as a philosophy creates, it sort of obscures a lot of that stuff that if it was totally stripped of that, I imagine they might go, actually, that's pretty cool tech. We just did these exercises that this Guadalajaran teenager came up with. And we noticed that we ourselves can actually do these cool things to our brains. You see what I mean? And so I often dream, like, why didn't these things arise in some other context? Because maybe they would be vastly more accessible and they wouldn't be all the, all the like ringing of sound in the room. And instead, there would just be something doable. Okay, so I would respond to that in two or three ways. The, the first one, I think, would, is not a criticism, but it's an observation that might resonate with some of what you might get from the SMB boys, would be that what I hear in that is the idea that a practice can emerge that is somehow clean or pure, stripped of the the messy human stuff that might get in the way of direct access to to certain states and i think that would be something just to put on the back burner well okay so it's nearly impossible not to imagine all of those things arising to just grant you that point right because that's what people do uh, at the beginning my response is just that i agree with you and i agree from a perspective of being a practitioner myself and but as i mentioned in our second conversation i consider these ideas as practices as well and from that perspective i would say two things the first is that a certain degree of competence with some of the the basic techniques that are available within buddhism that are often criticized in various ways by the more intellectual leaning posse would actually be really, really valuable. I mean, my view of, of, of my long-term relationship with different meditation techniques has been that it's actually created a, a far greater capacity to think clearly and to actually work with these big ideas in a way that five or 10 or 15 years ago, I, I wouldn't have been able to. And I think part of that is because a lot of what Buddhism has as, as a set of resources, both in terms of ideas, theory and practice and practices is, you're right. I mean, of course you're right. I mean, I think most people would find it hard to dispute this. It does actually provide a whole set of techniques or tools or tech, if you want to use that term, that can be used to work on the conscious mind, the thinking mind, the subjectivity, the relationship between the senses and so forth. And I don't think any of that should be ignored or given up. My experience has been the 
the deconstruction of the, the, the obsessiveness or the self-reflectiveness of the self, right? That compulsive grasping eye, which gets talked about in different ways in many different forms of Buddhism. I think it's perfectly doable, as you certainly agree, to actually come to a point where that can be reduced significantly, that there's a certain state of openness or freedom that can be enjoyed from that sort of self-referential discursive mind. My view is that that should be, in a sense, a foundational practice for anybody doing any kind of practice, and that that should be true as well for people engaging with the speculative non-Buddhist material, because then it just becomes far more accessible. It becomes far easier to actually look at one's own experience, but also the experience of other people, but also read up on rich texts about the fact that we are also socially formed, socially conditioned, and that those are always interplaying with each other. Yes. So I would, I would 100% agree with you on that. And I do agree that it would be useful for someone like yourself to have a conversation with Glenn about that kind of thing. And I know that they tend to discount personal experience or the phenomenological, because well, I don't know, actually, but I would I guess that it might be considered to get in the way or just be just yet another pull back to the decisional matrix of Buddhism. But I don't think that has to be the case. And I think people like myself and yourself would actually be open to that kind of conversation in a way that might be quite interesting, explorative and perhaps new and um, surprising. I think the other thing, though, is that um, one of the things that I hear a little bit in your uh, your presentation, and maybe I've heard it from you before, the, the individual does not exist apart from the world, however you look at it, and whether we want to keep going on about bloody social formation, or whether we want to talk about nature and biology, one of the questions that, that needs to be accompanying, I think, those kinds of practices which you spoke about, and it needs to be part of that kind of practice, is, you know, what's the unconscious here? What's both the individual unconscious, because as you well know, we don't have complete total access to what's going on in our in our minds and we don't have complete total access to the way our minds and our emotions and our bodies and feelings and habits and routines resistances which might be very very subtle desires which again may be very very True. subtle and the one that people always seem to forget about indifference can also be incredibly common yes and maybe one of the more interesting areas for exploration, how those are also operating at the same time, and they end up being woven into the kinds of practices that you're describing. So I, I hear your point, I think it's valid. But again, I would just say that those things just, they need to be together at the Great Feast of Knowledge. And I think that's where the interesting discussions are available. And I would love to hear you talk to Glenn about that. And I'd love to hear him maybe talk a little bit about his own experience, just so that he's actually playing the game in a sense, you know what I mean? And where would you go? Sure. If you really want to talk about the real, then talk about the real, right? So it's easy to then get lost in the sort of language of speculative non-Buddhism and have that take you away from the gritty real as well, you know, the actual uh, humanity. And so that's clearly the same trap that obviously they think the risk is worth it. And I get mm. that, right, that by going there and then hopefully you figure out how to come back, which is also sort of very uh, Laruellian. <laughs> such as a word. One thing I must say I really do appreciate about the um, speculative non-Buddhists and some of their work is a criticism of the very real shadow sides of a lot of these techniques and sort of their underlying assumptions. I know some of my friends don't like the fact that I'm sort of a, uh, have a lot of um, political and economic uh, interests and thoughts and passion about certain topics. 
but some of the criticisms that are coming out that mindfulness is being appropriated by neoliberalism, you know, to keep people as happy cubicle workers that believe solving the problem is entirely within themselves and they shouldn't work to change the external system. Can I share a little story with you? Just this afternoon, an elderly gentleman in his 70s who had been practicing with one of the major um, well-known mindfulness teachers a long time ago and even hosted a retreat for one of these very major teachers. I'm not going to name names because it's not important for the story. They said, you know, I was so disappointed in my first marriage when I was certain that if I just handled my side of it, all our arguments would Mm -hmm. would go away. If I just did my, and and this is something they were just telling me two, well now three hours ago, um, I was so disappointed and I I knew all these mindfulness techniques and we would get into an argument and I would go into the woods and walk with my dog and I would calm down and I would handle all of these feelings and become very clear and then I would walk back into the house and the arguments would just erupt again. And I was so embarrassed that I couldn't handle this with my internal techniques. And finally they said, yeah, the way to handle this actually was just get divorced. And then we were both much happier. (laughs) And so the sort of that, so it is true. Like I just found evidence this afternoon that someone had very powerful disappointment when the myth that if I just handle the, my internal experience, everything will be fine, didn't work out. And that's big stuff, right? And so the same thing with society or capitalism or the environment or whatever, you know, all of these true, real pressing external uh, concerns, jobs, mm. etc. So yeah, so it's just to, to bring it home to the real of someone actually mm-hmm. talking about mm-hmm. this. Yeah, I mean, that's, 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 that must have been a big uh, insight for him, for sure. And one of the interesting lines of exploration there is really, you know, to what degree does the individual uh, find the, the possibility to engage with these things apart from the world? And I think I've probably made that evident before. You know, my whole view of mm-hmm. practice is, is, is that it's relational and it's in movement. Just to reiterate the point I made before about the real, which again, if I were to define it as the incomprehensible or the totality beyond what my small little monkey brain can comprehend, then um, this is another way I think about it. Practice Practices end up becoming means for navigating the unfathomable or that which is infinite. And some traditions turn that into a story of mysticism. Others turn it into a story of nihilism, which is, you know, it's just, we just can't comprehend it. So what the fuck? <laughs> That's kind of, you know, take that as, as just a bottomless dark pit that's beyond human practice. But I, I often think of concepts and practices like the ones you described as kind of markers. They're like markers for for making the, 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 the sort of territory in front of us. Um, what's the word I'm looking for? Navigable. Does that word exist? Mm-hmm. Yes. Sure. And therefore, it might be useful to reframe practices within that kind of worldview. That would be another way of thinking about imminence, which is obviously a term that's come up a lot in, in the podcast series, but also in Glenn's work. One of the problems with 
the kind of conversation we're having, in a sense, one of the things we, we, we should be explicit about identifying is that there's a choice often between whether these practices become transcendental, and that can be a, with a small T or a big T. Big T would you know, be going towards some sort of monism, towards some union with some truth with a capital T or directly with the real with a capital R. Or, you know, there's transcendent as something that which takes us beyond something tangible, which we can't do, we don't want to deal with, or would prefer not to look at. And then the idea of the imminence, the imminent approach uh, in contrast to that would be operating on horizontal plane is something that's contingent absolutely it's something that uh, is restricted to the, our physicality so you know what our bodies can and ultimately cannot do and I think that's that's another way of thinking about it which might bring us back to a certain sense of humbleness both in relationship to practices and what they they might be able to lead us towards and what they can't lead us towards in one sense I think that's a useful way of always rethinking the heuristic it's it's a kind of reminder to be honest about what's actually taking place so that that girl in Guatemala I mean you know she's got a choice at some point right if she keeps going with those practices and if those practices are are developed in isolation well all of her flawed humanity is going to be involved in how she develops them and they'll be the good but they'll also be the bad and the bad is likely to be a sort of slipping into certain transcendental stories about what's actually taking place to reference the story you used about the 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 elderly man you spoke to unless that those practices get returned to the world at some point it's highly likely that they do end up becoming transcendental and that they do become part of a decisional matrix and that sufficiency might leak in there for the contemporary practitioner even taking those basic principles from the heuristic would would cause some kind of revolution right how can i take tantric practice or how can i take mahasi sayadaw practices and actually see to what degree decision sufficiency and so forth are slipped in what would it be like if i started to reapproach those practices within the world without those elements being present is it possible what would i change what would i add what would i take away and so forth yeah there's a lot in there first i myself am vastly less comfortable using words like words like the ineffable or the infinite for the real Mm -hmm. just so we're aware of our differences those kinds of um terms make me very nervous (laughs) just so you're aware i'll make sure i use them again (laughs) well anyway because they don't seem i i think i'm not sure they would hold up as well at the great feast of knowledge if one looked at them critically uh, that's my own uh, take on them um the other thing is that a lot of these concepts and things from the traditions actually the notion that the traditions haven't tried to counterbalance themselves within a, their social context is not true right so a lot of these these sort of excesses or problems or uh, dark sides or shadows a lot of these traditions have, you know, since the beginning, recognized problems, attempted to build in counterbalances to those problems or remedies to those problems or bulwarks against those uh, problems, the shadow sides, the, the excesses, the in, insufficiencies or whatever that the traditions have created. That doesn't mean that these traditions have become sufficient. So, but it, sometimes I think speculative non-Buddhism ignores a lot of the tech that these smart people who are not the first people to realize that there were balances or things wrong or problems with these concepts, you know, attempted to build into their own interpretations of these with sometimes incredibly radical reactions. So sometimes I look at this and it all seems extraordinarily Zen-like, right? And they're just like, you know, fuck all these Buddhist concepts 
just be real, which is very kind of Zen, right? That's sort of what Zen did in some way, you know, just be a true human here. Like don't, don't be lost in your ideals about experience. And then of course it went down and added all these aesthetics and ideals that got people lost from it. That, that problem you mentioned of people coming to sort of the gritty, empty, uh, immediate contingency and then immediately sliding off, right? They can't stay on that sort of existential hot seat for very long. And they slide back into religion and ceremony or hats or, you know, self-comfort or whatever. Right. I get it. But plenty of the traditions have actually had these reactions with them. Even so, for example, Tibetan Buddhism, like their sort of discourse within the, the frame of knowledge that they had access to, you know, incredibly harsh debate between the traditions and even this formal training was considered normal. And so each of these have attempted to do it with in some ways the frames they had and that's just what's going on today and i think in 30 years we'll have a different set of frames and you know things we're dealing with and issues and some will will then need to redo the thing again so i think in some ways the heuristic of speculant non-buddhism can be found even within the tradition which isn't the kind of thing they'd hate or within individual members of the tradition that were on the margins so that's another interesting concept right of that comes from some of this is people who are on the margins who are able to sort of look at it and take it apart and criticize it and figure out some useful things from it um, and that's been existing. So there are endless stories of people on the margins of Buddhism that contributed to it, that criticized it, that did whatever. And so I think this is part of an ongoing conversation, and it's important to realize that, mm -hmm. and between the traditions as well. Mm -hmm. A generous response to that would be that I think you're right. And I think knowing what goes on at the margins is something that historically has often been eliminated, right? Because we tend to get the doctrine or the stories from the, the winners, so to speak, in the, the battles between traditions, you know, and you see that across all religions. Um, and I think the marginal people are often those who just go off and do their own thing and, and maybe didn't write a book and start a lineage and therefore we never heard about them. So um, I, what I hear in what you're saying, and I think this is something that you've, you mentioned in our last conversation, is that you want to pay respect and uh, due respect to those humans throughout history who've who've been there within Buddhism and recognize some of these things and work with them actively to try and compensate, uh, adapt for them in order to resolve some of these issues. I certainly hear that on the one hand. On the other hand, there may also be some of that sufficiency still lingering and that one could also read what you're saying as, well, they've kind of done that already, so we don't need to necessarily think about it too much. Oh, no, I wouldn't take it to that extreme. I think it's an incredibly necessary part of the ongoing process of constant uh, critique, reevaluation, yeah. retooling. And this is, in some ways, one more manifestation of that extremely human, chronic process. Yeah. And, and that's where I think is the place in the middle, which is more interesting for us to move on with. What's the problem with sufficiency? Well, I, I actually would align it with this idea of refuge, which I think can be understood sometimes as looking for a resting place, but also looking for a comfortable spot where we can just sort of hang out for a while. Anything that allows us, certainly for more long-term practitioners of whatever it might be, when you've been involved with something that long, what what is the reminder? What is the challenge that allows you to get out of your comfort and actually recognize that you may be sort of stagnating or solidifying certain habits or, or, or not actually doing the necessary work to move the practice on, to innovate and respond effectively to the times we live in? And I think a lot of the problem actually is that we still have this kind of uh, culture across all fields of knowledge whereby 
a certain amount of learning can be quite passive, right? We can receive and that's enough. And, you know, part of the the idea of the heuristic and these postulates and the idea of practice is that actually, you know, these challenges, yes, they've been around before. And yes, you're right that some people certainly responded to them effectively. Other people instead, they did what I suggested at the beginning. They actually reinterpret, reinterpreted them as actually a justification for what they truly believe, or they get turned into a sign of a lack of faith or resistance and that becomes part of the story well, yeah true. so all those things are going on and i think all those things are going on right now my view of this postulate just to put us back on track a little bit would be that this recognition that mastery actually never happens truly is actually part of the idea the foundational idea that helps us because it's an affront to finality and one of the the problems with sufficiency is it says well that's been done so we've got that. We don't need to worry about it. We can just, you know, know that that's been done. We can focus on that other stuff. For a lot of people who sign up to the very individualistic ideal of the practitioner as being autonomous and totally capable of managing their own suffering or relationships, to use that that story you said again, is that implicit in that kind of ideal that it's kind of done. The messy stuff of being in, involved in religion and ceremony and ritual is kind of done, actually. And I can be autonomous and I can re, you know, re- reify this individual self that I am and, and break out and be free. The fact is, as we said before, you know, the unconscious is, is part of us too. The collective is part of us too. And that's always there. And we're always negotiating with that, just as we're negotiating with whatever we want to call the real, whether in science or philosophy or Buddhism or whatever. And that's the live challenge. The live challenge is to remember that we're actually repeating history constantly and if we join the great feast we're doing it actively and we're doing it in a way that hopefully will will allow us to be honest because we're both drawing on history so we're drawing on the traditions of buddhism but we're also recognizing that although certain forms of history are constantly repeating themselves there is some novelty to some degree or there are some forms of new ideas which really are only emerging now because they've been built on all the hard work done by all these wonderful ancestors of ours whether directly through our bloodline or not and in fact they they provided the way right they opened the way for certain forms of new inquiry to happen and some of that inquiry really is just an echo of the past but i would suggest that other forms are slightly different yeah i mean the social thing even if one um attained to whatever one thought of as true mastery or let's say there was even a finality of human development you know of effective action in the world or satisfaction or uh, self-actualization that one could actually come to in those sorts of senses the instant one did that, even if one walked away from the rest of it, within seconds, if anybody heard about it, they would be making a cult out of it. Uh, yeah. And so, right? and they would be idealizing it and they would be marketing it and they would be exploiting it and they would be doing all the things that people do with anything with it. And so even if, let's say, there was some theoretical individual or agent that could somehow break free from all that, that even of itself would cause all of the rest of it to occur. And that, in some ways, even is the story of Buddhism, if you're willing to take the protagonist, as they call Uncle Sid, idealized Uncle Sid in that way, instantaneously all the rest of the chaos begins to swirl around that theoretical Mm -hmm. moment of perfection. Right. So the conversation never ends. The notion also is of the building. I want to also talk about what's lost staggering amounts of tech 
of useful concepts, innovation are lost all the time. Trying to reconstruct some of the genius of what people were doing back in the day is really hard, even though we have evidence of it. If you read some of the old texts and you go, oh my God, what the, these were some really smart people and trying to replicate some of what they did and figure out how they were doing it. You're like, whoa, that's not so easy. And so I just want to make sure I don't fall into a boomer-esque sense of constant mm. progression, even given the sort of mm -hmm. constant conversation that we don't recognize that we've lost an amazing amount of uh, tech and capability. It was, it was interesting watching some videos about some of the nearly lost tantric tech out of Cambodia and Sri Lanka and Thailand that kind of vanished when Buddhism was sort of cleaned up in the 1800s and a lot of it just disappeared. We don't know what a bunch of it was. We have evidence that it existed, but we don't even know what it was. And uh, ways of looking at things, ways of doing things. And so we ha just have to recognize that under the great wheel of time, things are just constantly being crushed and uh, vanishing and such is the nature of the conditional real. A lot is lost for sure, and, uh, and that applies again, of course, across many fields. I was just thinking about some of the practical abilities that people like craftsmen have in Italy, which because of globalization are disappearing. Mm. Yes. Yeah, it's an interesting one, that, isn't it? I mean, that's, that's a whole different discussion about preservation, history, what is to be kept, to be preserved, because the fact is we can't preserve and keep it all, right? And no. some of these practices that you're you're referencing were, were very, very complex in many ways, in part... Uh, integrated into quite different types of cultural norms that one of the questions that comes up with things like ritual and ceremony which uh, just to give a nod to the next episode will be with uh, Cleo Kearns we'll be talking about ritual um, but one of the the things that's been observed again and again by anthropologists is just how ceremonies and ritual make sense within a contingent yes absolutely contingent but historical culture which has developed a certain kind of wisdom of its own over the years and generations and it's interesting I think again to, to, to relate that to the heuristic again, um, it's always interesting to say, how is it to revisit any of that with these ideas of sufficiency? Not not used as like, you know, a big stick to bash cultures with or Buddhists with, because you might have noticed I don't tend to do any of that. But um, to say, well, how would it be for us as Westerners to to acknowledge our condition, right, as modern beings, as postmodern beings, and for some perhaps emergent metamodern beings, how would it be to revisit that with some kind of epistemological humbleness, curiosity, and without playing the game of sufficiency and an excess of reverence for these things? And again, that's, that's probably a, a worthwhile task that some people might like to engage in, in revisiting some of these archaic Buddhist techniques. Because just to make one more nod to what you said uh, a few moments ago, I agree with you about practices. I agree with you about the primacy of experience for those who engage with meditation techniques. And I would say that's true also for group rituals. Um, it's fundamental to preserve the value of the motivation, but also the direct experience that anybody has in those dynamics. But it's also fascinating to bring that out into the open and say, well, what happens if I evaluate that experience and the outcome, whether it's realization, like a first or second, third or fourth path, to use terminology you're familiar with, or whether it's I'm actually getting better at calming my mind. How is it for me to evaluate all of that from the perspective of the tradition of Buddhism that I'm drawing on and the stories they use, which may be within sufficiency and decision and so forth? And then how would it be for me at the same time to actually evaluate that again from a position which is striving to exit the decisional bubble, exit the sufficient 
matrix, what happens at that point? That's an incredibly rich and creative ground, which, you know, one doesn't have to exclude the other, right? That's one of the the things that's often missed by people who see this kind of project as primarily intellectual or dismissive. As you rightly said before, it's fitting proximity, right? It's finding the right relationship with, with each. My perspective so far, which of course is limited and partial, has been that it's actually possible to do what you do and to do what they do and actually to gain some very, very interesting insight from both, which is to go really, really deep into different types of practices, individual and collective, and discourse and breeding and contemplation, and see it within the framework of a tradition, and then see it from the perspective of the heuristic. And both are extremely valuable. Yeah, well, the heuristic is just sort of intrinsically, even without explicitly stating it, is part of what happens in social discourse, right? So that's why a social context is not only inescapable, but also very valuable, particularly these days with the internet, which allows simultaneously for some people to just be funneled into ever-narrowing echo chambers of, you know, things they like, but for a lot of other people to go out and attack and critique people they otherwise never would have talked with. So one of the things about the Dharma Overground, um, you know, the experiment that's been going on for over 10 years now and hundreds of thousands of posts or however many are on it, Um, is that tons of people show up with all kinds of criticisms, all kinds of ideals, all kinds of expertise, thousands of people. And that work actually happens in an extremely raw, real, organic human way. Um, And so those kinds of things, from my point of view, even while by saying something like the Dharma overground from a certain point of view might just they might say, oh, no, because it does that, then it can't possibly be free of, you know, um, what are the fancy words uh, sufficient? What's the uh, fitting proximity or, you know, salience of requisite dis- disenchantment? Um, that said, there are plenty of unbelievably caustic, disenchanted, you know, bitter, we, we would call sometimes call kind of dark nighty, uh, people who engaged with the tradition, got really angry and then showed up and all of that comes out. And uh, so the cons, so I've been involved in an 11 year experiment of constant criticism. And the other thing is if you put out, out your name, you know, as you write a book or you put your name out there as having done this or that or whatever, then you get a relatively steady barrage of emails of people saying you're totally full of shit and here's why. (laughs) Right. And, and right. And so, and so while the speculative non-Buddhists would say that, of course, but because you have the sufficiency of Buddhism, you're perfectly insulated. So they create this character of the perfectly insulated Buddhist who can't possibly be self-critical or actually listen to what other people say about their shit. Right. Um, In fact, that sort of ideal of perfect insulation is hard to sustain decade after decade particularly when you're public in that kind of way or endlessly engage in these sorts of discussions. Just to say that these processes as part of a social construct and social milieu are what occur, unless you just stick in your incredibly small cult in your little mansion Mm, somewhere. Of course, some people do. You know. Some people are very Some good. It's called uh, blocking people on Twitter and Facebook. <laughs> yeah, you know, sure. which is, I mean, again, right. that's negotiation, right? We are social creatures. We're always negotiating these relationships. And for me personally, 
that's the interesting thing, right? I actually find that more interesting than whether somebody's right or wrong. But certainly the question that comes to my mind is, you know, what what do you get out of defending yourself from, you use the word attack and critique, I wouldn't use those together, I'd, I'd separate them out. I think both take place. But the critique is often perceived of as attack an attack. And I think that often tells us much more about the person receiving it than even the person giving it out. And that's not a statement I'm making necessarily about Glenn Wallace or Tom Pepper, because I think there's some ambiguity there and people have a right to discuss it. <laughs> but for me, there at least it's like, yeah, sure. For me, it's like, um, you know, where's the benefit? I mean, maybe maybe I'm a little bit um, of a sadomasochist here. I don't know, or a ma- just a masochist. For me, at least, if that kind of criticism comes forwards, I find it interesting as a meditation object, right? I look at it. How does it impact my body? What happens to my emotions? And it's like, wow, that's really interesting. Let's, yeah. let's let that happen. Let's not resist it. Let's not be indifferent to it. Let's not try and get to another feeling. Mm-hmm. Let's breathe sure. it in and right now. What am I going to do? What, what, what is it really? Mm-hmm. You know, how, do, how can I look at that from, I would say, a fitting proximity? You know, a position that allows me to be curious yeah. about it, not play the sort of the selfhood game of I need to defend myself in some way, not play the, the truth game of, oh, they're right, I'm wrong, or I'm right, or they're wrong. But, you know, there's a relationship unfolding there. Is it worth engaging with? Could I learn something from it? And again, that's a kind of invitation that I would make to people who might have seen something like the heuristic as an attack rather than critique. Because of course, critique, what is it? It's a, it's a very well, usually a, a well-articulated, thought-out, informed response to something that's taken place that uses... Sometimes. Yeah, uh, you know, uses knowledge in order to construct an argument. I mean, that's the difference I think we can probably make between just critique and criticism. Sure. And so actually, though, I actually think fitting proximity ultimately is part of the problem. So they would say that if you maintain your sort of transcendent distance from the imminent, that that in and of itself is part of what they are trying to destroy. Right. So that's the curious thing. I'm not is, sure I've got that. Can you say that again? Okay. So decision is essentially to take a that this is this that takes a take on that, I think. It's a sectioning off of something to then look at it in a sectioned off way. And from a certain point of view, I get the weird sense that the the deeper message of this is that no fitting proximity to yourself, to your experience, to your emotions in the end has to go and has to be um, destroyed because that sort of comfort that comes from taking a respectable distance and being mindful seems at its core to be one of the things that they're actually objecting to. And Uh, I can actually truly appreciate that from a certain point of view Mm -hmm. as well. All right. I'm not sure I I would agree with that as an interpretation of the usage of fitting proximity. Um, the, the notion of fitting proximity arises within a social context, right? Well, and a yeah, historical context. Yeah, not just and that. A paradigmatic context. But I actually get the sense that in some way they're criticizing it as a visceral context. Okay. Mm, no, I would I would say it's slightly different from that. And okay. again, I'm not the authority on this, so people sure. will take it as they will. But 
the whole non comes about because if you look at the history of thought or practice or Buddhist traditions as well, and this would fit into some of the things you were saying before, what tends to happen is a, a set of ideas or a system evolves, right? So you get kind of like a grand theory or a yes. big truth, right? And then what mm. tends to happen is someone else comes along and they say, no, you're wrong. And they formulate a new model or a new path or a new school or a new truth that sure. actually emerges as an opposition to that pre-existing one. Mm-hmm. And by doing that, you know, the oppositional system rejects the prior system and formulates itself anew. But of course, it does so as a reaction to that pre-existing model. So what it's actually saying, fitting proximity, is that that's a trap that we've been playing time and time and time again. And actually what happens is the new form of truth is actually, you know, just based in a sort of reactive model in relationship to the previous one. And and therefore it misses a lot of what's going on. And at the same time, it kind of absorbs a lot of what was problematic with the previous model. At that point, then the person is merely, instead of actually saying, well, I'm producing a system that's a response to that system. They're saying that guy thought he had the truth. He didn't because now I've got it. And from there, they create this kind of, well, you could use different metaphors, but one would be like a window through which you look at the world. It could be like something you wear, which conditions everything you experience. Fitting proximity instead as an idea says that that game is deeply problematic. And what we actually have to do is we have to recognize the limits of the existing system, but not get seduced into thinking that we can create a brand new system that will solve all our problems. Yes, that's fine. So how do we do that? Well, one of the ways we do that is we uh, engage in the heuristic practice of recognizing the role of ideology as the collective formation of people within a a sort of a perspective of the world that's not complete. So fitting proximity says, can I exist in relationship to the old and the emergent in a way that I'm not playing that game? So I'm not actually rejecting Buddhism entirely because it's wrong so that I can now get to science. It's not rejecting all of religion or Christianity because secularism has the truth. It would be saying, well, actually, how can I relate to Christianity and secularism and the different fields of science in a way that allows me to keep them all in relationship at that great feast of knowledge? So that's a little bit different. There's no rejecting of them. There's no kind of get away from them is saying, what's the optimal relationship to them, which is actually not transcendent, you see, or or at least minimally transcendent. And it would exist on that imminent ideal, right, of, of staying in the world and not leaving it. And knowing that in part, all we're doing with all of these practices is, is shifting the type or style of relationship we have with them. Sure. Okay. Well, that, that came back to something I'm more comfortable with. Nice. God damn it, this time has flowed. And we've That's got, true. What else have we got? <laughs> we've got, well, we just did one postulate. <laughs> I can keep going. I've got, yeah. I, I can stretch it out if you can. If you can't, that's okay. So what about this next one? Um, this was postulate two. Do you, have you got it in front of you? Do you want to read it out? I don't have it in front of me right okay, now. Okay, let me just uh, dig it out here. Postulate two, practice carries with it a certain need for incomprehension. This is why, oh, this is fantastic. You're going to like this one and you probably remember it. This is why it's a good sign when we open an obscure book written by some French asshole (laughs) only to find ourselves frustratingly staring down pages of pure gibberish. What such an experience reveals to us is that we are unaware of the conditions determining our practice. And this kind of relates to some of what we've been talking to. If everything was always easy for us to understand, would that not be due cause for suspicion? (laughs) Our non-Buddhist practice declares, yes, it would. I'll just agree with that. Sure. (laughs) Really? You're just going to stop there? All right. Okay. Well, well. Uh, so so I, I think being aware, functionally aware of where we draw lines and why 
of the intrinsic problems with that are a great message from this um, French person <laughs> and incredibly useful. Mm -hmm. And the notion that it is easy for all of us to, in real time, as in an operationalized way, to be aware of where we're drawing the lines and their problematic implications, right? So that if, when you make a decision, it relates to a problem, but it also in some ways creates a, a problem, right? So it's, it's, you know, the problem is this complicated thing and those problems are real and the consequences of decision are real, but to, in, in real time, be aware of all of that for all of our axioms, underlying paradigms, theories, assumptions, knee-jerk reactions is nearly impossible. And But the practice of trying to be aware of that, I think, is a great thing to attempt. Mm -hmm. Yeah, one question that emerges since he's talking about Frenchmen you know, is who will help us. Um, I've made this comment before when talking about pedagogy more generally. Uh, one of the problems, I think, with a lot of Buddhist teachers is that they can find themselves at a point whereby they're not getting uh, sufficient feedback from outside of their circle of connections and collaborators and cohorts in order to push them out of what I would des describe as complacency. And you know, I'm not saying that happens to all of them all the time and, you know, that there's a magic pill for that. But I think that one of the, the challenges of this concept of incomprehension is that it reminds us, first of all, that, you know, there's no end in, in a sense to our learning and discovery. We are to some degree forever dumb. And the other thing as well is that it serves as a reminder that um, it, it's really, it could be viewed actually as a gift or an act of immense generosity to have the smugness of spiritual wisdom disrupted by somebody who speaks in a voice which is so alien to our way of understanding the world. And that's one of the ways I tend to engage with, with difficult philosophy. I tend to see it again. I keep saying this again and again, but as a practice, and I put it to that use. You know, where am I smug? Where have I got complacent? Where do I think I've kind of got this and I can put it over there and say that's done and dusted? And I was thinking of two people two people come to mind. One of them that was really helpful for me in this regard when I was younger was a crazy Slovenian philosopher who you probably know is Slavoj Žižek. And another yeah. one I've discovered more recently, um, partly due to, well, a, a kind of interesting combination of events, Ken McLeod and Glenn Wallace is the German philosopher Peter Schlotterdijk, yeah. who's another person whose writing is infuriating at times, but he has a way of just, just disrupting you know, assumptions and disrupting certain lines of inquiry and thought, which seem to be kind of done. And I find that incredibly useful. And I think nice. that would benefit, well, dare I say, anybody who tends to preach wisdom. Yeah, well, I mean, as you've noticed in the last, I was totally willing to spend um, most of the last uh, two days pouring through the speculative non-Buddhist material, which then led to having to pour through a bunch of other stuff to even mm. understand what the hell these people were talking about. <laughs> um, and other articles that led to and looking up definitions and Wikipedia pages and, and so on and so forth. Actually, weirdly enough, I'm facing the reverse problem. And I'm not sure what that says about me. Like, I just got sent another Buddhist book to review. And mm. in its first few pages, it said, you know, basically, this book is the perfect reconstruction of the true, fastest, most optimal techniques to perfect human development. Oh, no. And I was like, you have got to be 
fucking kidding me? Another one of these? Jesus Christ. Like, uh, stop the madness. And so this is a book I probably should read because it's a book that other people are going to be talking about from a sort of a technique point of view. Mm. But just getting through the initial cloud of that kind of shit is just like, I'm not sure I can take this. I'm not sure I can do this, <laughs> right? So that's, that's a good I'm sign. I'm actually facing a reverse problem where yeah. it's way easier for me to go through when it's way easier for me to go through the speculative non-Buddhist site than it is for me to wade through that. Like, uh, wow, you know, take it for what it's worth. So something's changed here, Daniel. <laughs> <laughs> I find it incredibly difficult to read uh, Dharma, well, contemporary Dharma books. I, I, I just, I see this stuff everywhere in them. And I think um, there's just a lot of smugness and a lot of, uh, complacency in the way that we've just described but uh yeah i wouldn't want to be on your shoes in fact i've been sent a few books by folks who wanted to get their teachers on the podcast i don't know if they still want to after you know a couple of years of this thing being going but i had a similar reaction i just can't read it anymore um yeah and it's not and it's not to say that some of the techniques in that book are not going to be brilliant it's i'm just sure that, you know, some of it's right? going to be useful yeah, tech but the yeah. other thing it's most of it's actually relatively old tech they just didn't okay. know about and they think is new which is also uh, okay. equally annoying but anyway okay, okay. Yeah, yeah, so, yeah. It's frustrating, but maybe you could take it as a as a, a heuristic project and apply the non to it and see what happens. Might make yeah. it more interesting. <laughs> it definitely makes it more interesting, but yeah. you know that leads to a certain um, visceral feeling, right? Yeah. That leads to a certain raw primal. Oh, well, that's good. You know, um, that's good. So the it's uh, so a little taste of the real, if you will. Yeah, yeah. Daniel, anyway. we, we are coming to the end of our time and we have failed miserably to get through all of these postulates. But I think we've had a, an interesting discussion as we did the last two times. Sure. And um, one thing that remains on the menu that we did hint at, and maybe we can do it a little bit further down the line, would be a discussion about Ken Wilber at some point. Yes, love to. So I would suggest I've got um, a few things lined up. I've got three more episodes that are going to come out uh, after this one. And I would suggest that maybe towards the end of the summer, we hook up again and uh, discuss Wilbur. What do you think? That sounds delightful. Yeah. Another thing. Yeah. Some of the sort of uh, weird tech that comes out of integral theory. I don't know if they think that like he's sort of a philosopher beneath them or something or too mm. drunk the Kool-Aid. But some of that stuff's actually kind of useful sometimes. Mm. Anyway, mm. just a, as well, a teaser. I'll... I'll do some reading up on his work because, like I said, I've confessed on various in, in various locations that I don't know a huge amount about his work. Um, I've been sent some interesting resource material, so over the summer I'll have a look. Um, the other thing that we should mention as well is it might it would be fun, I think, actually, that would be a bit of an interruption to the plan if Glenn decides that uh, he will actually keep his word and come on and have a chat with you about this stuff. I'd be happy to uh, moderate that discussion. So be let's delightful. see how that goes as well. Yeah, and see uh, see what he thinks about the discussion we've just had. And anybody else that wants to chime in, as you heard, Daniel's ready for some criticism, but me too. And uh, feel free to post your comments and ideas at the usual locations and uh, we'll have a look at them. But we'll have a bit more time this time to digest them and think about them if we so choose. Daniel, is there anything you want to, to say before we finish up? No, this has been delightful. Thank you so much for your time and thoughts and wisdom. Ah, yeah, yeah, wisdom. <laughs> a loaded you cheeky bugger, you got that one in there, did. didn't you? <laughs> I totally did. Yeah, well, likewise, and uh, thanks for being a great sport. <laughs> Thank you.